Well, welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. Glad to be here. It's okay. You can get excited. I'm excited. It's time to get a chance to teach the Bible. I can fire it up, man. That's good stuff. So what you say is going to be, Jesus did not come to start a religion. Jesus came to bring a revolution of transformation, of love, of renewal, of salvation, all of that and more. We're talk about Jesus versus religion, or Jesus is greater than religion. We gotta understand. We gotta define terms. I like to define terms. I like to explain things to people so that everybody understands what it is that we're actually talking about. That used to be. Right? We use right? these big words: redemption, sanctification. You know, we use a word like religion. We don't even really know what that word means. What the heck are we talking about here? Religion means reverence expressed in a ritual out of a sense of obligation. So it's going to you're like worshiping God. And you're worshiping God with a ritual, not because you want to, but because you feel obligated to. Means to revere, to obligate, and it also comes from this word piety, which means dutifulness. See, Jesus isn't interested in you worshiping him or following him or coming to him because you feel some sense of obligation, because you feel some sense of pressure. <laughs> he wants you to worship him from his heart. He wants you to follow him from the heart. He wants you to do what you to do it because you want to. And a lot of times people don't worship him out of what they want to because they don't understand. We have a runaway, children's ministry runaway. She's a runner. When people go like this, this is what it looks like. We put this pressure on. Well, I guess I have to go to church. No, you got to. I guess I have to sing. No, you got to. I guess I have to. No, you got to. All of these things are honors and privileges that are given to us. And God doesn't want you giving something to him out of some sense of obligation, some outward pressure. He wants you to do it because you want to. And what does religion express itself, particularly in the church, you know? We see it a lot because this is what we're most familiar with and in, in uh, America, is, is the gospel, you know, our churches. And what ends up happening is, is we, we see religion expressed in dress. And good, well-meaning people say to me, Pastor, you should wear a suit. It's more traditional. Yeah? And I tell them, why don't I wear tables in the robe? That's more biblical. <laughs> <laughs> we used to be downtown, and when we were downtown, we were literally downtown, you know? So we were in the part of downtown, and uh, we have some very, you know, eclectic, very people from all different sort of Parent, uh, stages of life, and, and uh, they come to me and say, you know, Pastor, did you see what that girl was wearing this morning? And I would say, well, she's wearing clothes, so that's at least the start. We're moving in the right direction before Jesus. She wouldn't dress like that. We also, when we were downtown, we had a smoking section outside of the church. So we got a lot of, we got a lot of, you know, people that smoke. We had a smoking section outside. <gasps> Leave it. Smoking doesn't set you to it just makes you smell like you've been there. That's all that does. That's it. Taking, have a right? And so we have a smoking section. I have people come in and go, I saw a bunch of people smoking outside the church this morning. I'd be like, what are they smoking? They'd be like, cigarettes. I'm like, we're making progress. We're all different stages of life. We put these religions. Jesus is not interested in externals. He's interested in internals. Jesus said, you honor me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. It's not how outwardly pious you are. It's how inwardly forgiven you are. Here we go into Pharisees. So it's, it's the way we dress. It's the way we speak. This is, again, what we see. Christians have their own language. We call it Christianese. Bless God, hallelujah, brother. Save you, sanctified. Oh, hallelujah. Praying for you. Praying for you. And we have, this, we have this way of talking that's completely irrelevant outside of the context of the church. If what you have in here is not applicable out there, it's, it's useless. It's emptiness. It's vain. You understand what I'm trying to say? I was at a grocery store one time, and I was in line, and the guy in front of me, you know, he's seeing all these like, oh, stuff, and I'm just standing there, and all of a sudden he finds out I'm a Christian. He's like, oh, bless God, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And he, goes, he immediately goes into Christian mode. I can't even talk like that anymore. You know, but, oh, hey, brother, I haven't seen you. Oh, you know, he's talking these, you know, like hyper-spiritual sort of ways that are completely not relatable. You know? So it comes across in the way that we talk. We use these monster words, which they're in the Bible, well, that word's in the Bible. Yeah, it's in the Bible, but if people don't understand what that word means, it means if I stand up here and use these words and use redemption, sanctification, justification, and I use all salvation, and I use these words without defining them, the only person I'm impressing is myself and the religious people who actually do know what it means. We have to break the word down. So religion comes across in the way that we dress and the way that we speak. It's not what, that's not the heart of the Lord. 
This is the same thing that Jesus was confronting in his day. He had religious people around them that the way that they dressed and the way that they spoke, they loved to give long, eloquent prayers that nobody understands. They loved to wear huge, crazy clothes. You know, they, they, they just bling it out. It's fine. If you want to go Gucci, go Gucci. You know what I'm saying? But if you want to come in shorts and a flip-flops, then come in shorts and a flip-flops. It's not, it's not what you're wearing that impresses Jesus. It's the fact that you're here. That the fact that you honor him with your, with your presence, that's what his heart is for. You know? So that's what we mean. Also, the rules of being This is a really big one. I don't know if y'all, some of you, first service with a lot of people, you know, have experienced this, is that, you know, there are unwritten rules in churches. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you go to some churches and it's like, well, what are the rules here? We try to let you know when you come in the building that there, there's not a lot of unwritten rules. You know, it's come as you are. You come into some churches and everything's like, Locked down. Nobody's talking. Don't talk. It's the house of the Lord. Is he doubt? Is the Lord doubt? Can he not hear? If you read your Bible, the Bible tells you, shout to the Lord with the voice of trumpet, with the voice of triumph. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Call upon me. You know? I mean, there's no word in the scripture where it tells us, shh, shh, shh. We're in church. Nobody talk. Unwritten rule. And if you actually talk, and everybody's looking at you, how dare you speak we're in the house of God. If you wear a hat, I've gone into some churches, I've had a hat on, baby. Take your hat off. It's not reverent to wear a hat. Again, can you, can you show me that in the Bible? Is Jesus walking around pointing to people with hats? Hey, don't you know you're my brother? <laughs> you know what I mean? Shh. Don't you know I'm here? Be quiet. Unwritten rules. I was just at this conference. Crazy. Unwritten rule. I broke an unwritten rule. <laughs> yes, I did. And I paid the price for it. I'm in an unwritten, I was in the conference, and we believe in the prophetic here at LA. We believe that, that God's spirit is still speaking, and he has a word, and he has something to say, and his spirit is active and powerful. And I felt like I was a guy that was there at this conference. I didn't know who he was. I just saw him. I kept seeing a slingshot, and I felt like the Lord was telling me to give this guy his words and jump off the slingshot. Uh, all right, whatever. You know, I'm not like running around going, oh, let me prophesy to I feel like the Lord is telling me, you know, I get a read, but it doesn't mean every time I get a read, it doesn't mean I'm supposed to jump off and prophesy to someone. So I went home, and I was, we went back to the hotel, and I was kind of, I felt like the Lord kept showing me the slingshot, and I felt like he was pointing at that guy. I said, okay, if I see the guy, and he's alone, I'm not going to chase him down, I'm not going to run after him, you know, well, I got something for you, but if I see him and he's alone, I'll go over and I'll give a word. And so that's what ended up happening, sitting by himself, like, oh, okay, I walk over there, and I got a word for you, do you want it? He goes, yeah, please sit down. So I sit down and start sharing the word. I said, I see a slingshot, but I hear the word long shot. I said, I feel like the Lord says to you, you're the guy that nobody took a chance on, or nobody will take a chance on, but Jesus will take a chance on you. And I said, but he wants you to know he's not taking a chance on you, he's taking a chance on the spirit that he's placed into you. And he said, his confidence is in you, it's in his spirit. And I started sharing that. And I said, also, I see that you're a very risk. I feel like the Lord says to you, you're a risk taker. And I said, I feel like part of your calling is to take risks into the kingdom that you should start making these choices like towards the kingdom. He looks at me, he puts his hand in my face, I'm not lying. He puts his hand, he's, I'm sitting, like, like this just wasn't here, it was another church. Here, and I'm here. He goes like this, puts his hand in me, he goes, first of all, I'm a pastor here, and you do not have permission to prophesy to me. That's what he says to me, right? I get up, I'm like, oh, okay, no problem, if you don't want it, don't want to receive it, no worries, no worries, we're good, I go to school, and I go, I don't need your rebuke, that's what I said. He goes, and I'm standing up, he's sitting down, he's like, Sit down, I'm not rebuking you, I'm reproving you. They go, well, I don't need your reproof either. Right? And he goes, let me take a picture of your name badge, because we got these big name badges, and mine was going backwards. I go, oh, you want to take a picture of my name badge? Oh, here it is right here, there's my name badge. Oh, <laughs> Religious, arrogant people. Completely out of line. I didn't do that. That's what I wanted to do. But that's I wanted to go, yeah, I got it right here in my pocket. But ciao! You know, that's kind of what I wanted. Take a picture of my name badge for you, like a church place. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just completely out of order. If you didn't want the word, he said, if you didn't want the word, then you should have you told me that. You should have said, hey, I felt like he set me up, which is false pretenses. And then I talked to the senior pastor about it, and his attitude was just basically, well, you know, uh, nobody prophesies to our pastors, and nobody prays for our pastors, no exceptions. And I said, well, you might want to think about putting that on the wall. You know what I mean? We should blazing that on the wall. All of your unwritten rules should be on the wall so that nobody breaks, God forbid, the unwritten rule. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just crazy. And we do, we do stuff like that. His attitude to me was basically, you 
See, this is the context that I come from. This is the stuff that has moves me away. And this is the stuff oftentimes in the church, we are, we're religious, we're islands unto ourselves, but we're not affected in the lives of people because of the way that we treat people. And it's wrong. It's not the scriptures, and it's not the Bible. And I tell the pastor, the pastor's like, well, you just need to get over it. You know, nobody prophesies to our pastors. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. So you should, you know, you should have told me. You should put that on the wall. You should blaze it down on the door. Wear t-shirts. No prophecy allowed. You know, great. That's a whole other story. That's what you should do. But his attitude to me was, you need to get over it. That's the context I come from. Where if a leader offended you, whether he did it on purpose or whether he didn't do it on purpose, they never apologized. And what the leadership should do, if somebody's offended and they make the offense, no, you should try to hear it. If, if it's something that happened, then apologize. Say, oh, I'm sorry, that was not what I intended. Or if it was un- if it was something that, that is just a misunderstanding, then clarify the misunderstanding. But there too, the, the, the position is we're just magnanimous. We're men of God. I didn't go, oh, pastor too. Oh, oh. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm a pastor here, and you don't have permission to prophesy. And that dude's at least 25 years younger than me. And I'm looking at him going, dude, that was in ministry. I was one thinking, I'm in ministry when you were playing with G.I. Joe's. You know? I'm like, you know, just complete arrogance and over the line. And that's what I told the pastor. I said, if he talks to me like that off the cuff, I'm like, I hate to see how people talk like that. You know? It's, 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 what, what needs to be understood here, the point that I'm trying to make, is that is not the gospel. The way that the church reflects Jesus is not the way that he is. And that is exactly what Jesus would do to the Pharisees within the cultures. They were reflecting God. They were bearing his name in vain. They were presenting a God in their own image, and they were presenting him inside the context of the box that they had created. You want to know who God is? Look into the life of Christ. All you got to do is read Jesus. He's perfect theology. He comes right up against religious systems, right up against religious doctrines, right up against our way of thinking. He didn't, he didn't have a problem talking to sinners and tax collectors with all of the outcasts of society. We meet those words, well, they're sinners and tax collectors. No, they were freaking perverts. Worshipping strange gods and doing strange things. Okay? And Jesus went to them and said, you guys are sinners and you're broken. You're messed up. Right? And they go, we know. Can you help Okay? And he helped him. He goes to the religious and tells them, your outward works cannot save you. Your whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Outwardly you look amazing, but inwardly you're full of snakes. You're full of your vipers on the inside. They looked at him and go, you have a demon. You're a friend of sack tax collectors and sinners. You're a drunkard and a glutton. That's what they did. You get the context of what Jesus is talking about, what, what, what God presents here. This is how he reflects himself. There's no issue with it. With the things that we have issues with, he doesn't. It doesn't mean Jesus, it doesn't mean the way you come to Christ is not how you finish. But Jesus is okay with you just as you are. You don't have to clean it up and make it right before you come to the Lord. Come to him with what you got. Hello. It's not about you. Well, I gotta get right before I come to the Lord. No, you just come to the Lord, he'll get you right. He'll change you from the inside out, he'll transform you. He's not interested in externals. I mean, come on. John the Baptist, you ever read about him? Most organic guy. The guy ate locusts and wild honey. You know what I mean? He must have had like a Whole Foods on the corner. So that's what we call it. You know what I mean? He's the ultimate like earth child. You know, he, he wore camel's hair. Wild, long hair, camel's hair with a belt. Jesus said, though, both born among women, of the prophets born among women, nobody's greater than him. So if you think Jesus is interested in externals, he should have said, you know, John, we just got to do something about this look. You know what I mean? Your diet plan, it's cool, but, you know, it's not really the image I'm looking for. You know, what's up with the camel's hair and this leather belt deal, you know? Uh, I mean, he didn't, he didn't even correct it. So if you think that Jesus is interested in that, he's not. He's interested in the heart. What the Bible says that God met him to the outward, but the Lord looks at the what? Heart. So we're all concerned with externals. Jesus isn't impressed with externals. Whether you're Gucci or whether you're flip-flops and shorts, he don't care. That doesn't impress him. It's not interesting, but we, that impresses us. And we break unwritten rules with our churches. We have unwritten rules. Unwritten rules. You know what I mean? We all have to be like this. We all have to be like that. All, if you want to be like that, that's fine. But don't impose that upon other people. I was in Germany. I'll tell you guys a story. I was in Germany. We're in Germany. So what do you mean, America? You know, you know it's sort of context in churches. It's like, you know, we're kind of anti-alcohol, right? Alcohol is not a sin. Drunkenness is. You see, get the difference? So the Bible does not condemn the drinking of alcohol. It condemns drunkenness. Because drunkenness lowers your inhibitions 
and you end up going places and doing things and saying stuff that you shouldn't. That's why the Bible says, hey, don't go there. Yeah? So that's the issue. So when I, but I come from a contact, I come from a different world. So I'm over in Germany. I'm sitting down, I'm with a bunch of guys, with Christians are playing the church. Woo, you know, we're playing the church. And they all go, hey, Pastor, come on, we're gonna, we're gonna go to the beer garden after the church, which is an English garden, it's a beautiful garden in the middle of Munich. So all kinds of things. It's a really beautiful place just where everybody goes and hangs out. And so I go there with all the believers from church, and they all walk up to the counter and go, Einmas bitte, which is one big beer, please. Right? And all of them walk away with a flipping beer that's like that. I'm like going, uh, okay. And they had a beer that was half, half beer and half round lemonade. It's called Rattler. I think anybody knew right here. They, we call them shandies, but they call them Rattler. So I, I, you know, I was going all in on them. You know, on the on the low and brow, but I was going to go in on that. So I have a rattle, so I sit down with them all, and they're all, you know, drinking big beers, and, you know, even the old ladies that sit down, you know, oh, what a service, hallelujah. You know what I mean? Praise Jesus. You know, everybody's giving glory to God. I would go, but the did so that, that's, their, their unwritten rule was, hey, it's okay. But when I went out to breakfast with them, and I'd order three cups of coffee, they look at me like I had a problem. And we need to pray for this pastor, man. He's like, it's on his third cup of coffee. <laughs> like, you should see me on Sundays. I go for about six, you know. It's like, to, see, to them, their unwritten rule was, well, caffeine, you can't go in on caffeine, but hey, man, you know, beer was part of their culture. You see what I'm saying? Coffee's, you know, we, we don't have an issue with coffee. They have an issue with their, so their unwritten rules, they weren't condemning, but what I'm saying is, is that we have these unwritten rules, with these unwritten ways of seeing things, that it's just a bunch of nonsense, man. It's a bunch of nonsense. And what we do, now that we've been in churches, is like, for us, it's natural, supernatural. Who you are, integrated with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit expressing you through you in a, in a way that anybody, that you can, you can take the Holy Spirit and express the Spirit of God in any context outside of this place, and you should be able to do that with ease. Certain churches, it's like when you come in on Sunday morning, you got to go into mode. You know what I mean? i got to go into hallelujah mode. You know, I gotta go into this mode, I gotta be a robot. And you're only accepted in the group if you can talk like that. You're only accepted in the group if you can act like that. You're only accepted in the group as if you dress like that. That's not gospel. That's religion. Ouch. <laughs> this is hard for us because we love religion. We love it. You know? But Jesus said by, by, by honoring your traditions or by your traditions, the way you see things, you honor your traditions over me. And so by the traditions, you make the word of God, the power of God, of no effect. No effect, because you value the way that people dress, the way that people talk, the way that people act. You know, and some of it is dressing. So some churches, man, skinny jeans and smoke machines. And if you don't have crazy hair, you feel like you're an outsider. So you're like a 55-year-old guy, and you're trying to squeeze in the skinny jeans, you know, and go to the church because that's the ethos of the culture. The whole church is that way. And if you want to be in with the in crowd, you've got to look like that. Well, I don't care if you wear skinny jeans. I don't care if you wear bags. You know, if you're trying to wear some pants, that would be at least helpful to the problem. But if you understand what I'm trying to get at here, we create cultural contexts within our churches that are exclusive. Crickets. <laughs> we create contexts within our churches that are exclusive. And the only people we're reaching are people that just like that, you know, that, that fit that mold. Kingdom of God is diverse. Kingdom of God is not like that. It's not how God is. Anyway, so the way we dress, the rules we keep. Here's Jesus. He's going to a Pharisee's house. Who's a Pharisee? They were, they were the religious rule keepers. You have two groups of Christians, two groups of teachers in that culture. You had Pharisees and Sadducees. So you have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the ultimate rule keeper. Every rule has to be kept. Every law has to be. You have to do everything right. They like the checklist. They like everything. They were very fair. You see. Then you have Sadducees. They don't believe in eternal life. They were very deep students of the word. They were intellectuals, but they didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't believe in, the, in, in certain aspects. And something that my Bible teacher taught me that's very sad, you see. So you want to know the Sadducees and the Pharisees? And these Pharisees are the height of the religious teachers of the day. And they invite Jesus to his house. This Pharisee says, hey, come to a dinner party. So Jesus loves everybody, right? He even loves the religious. They're religiously correct. So he says, hey, come to my house. Jesus has a party. These guys were very wealthy. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. So it's, he goes to this Pharisee's house. All the intellectuals are there. All the students of the law, they're all there. Jesus walks in, okay? Says, come and dine with me. So Jesus goes and he sits down to eat. But when the Pharisee saw that Jesus went over and sat down to eat, he was astounded that he had first not washed his hands. 
before I sat down. You see the unwritten rule in this house? You wash hands before you sit down. And they weren't washing hands because they didn't have Purell or they didn't have hand sanitizer. They were washing hands at a religious ceremony. They would go like this, they would pour, they would go like this. You had to turn your hands three times. One, two, three. And they would just pour water over your hands. That's it. It was like, we are holy. Aren't we righteous? And Jesus had no time for it. Jesus is the word of God. You know, they represented God. The Lord's like, if I'd have told you to do that, I would have done it myself. Clearly, I didn't tell you to go before you wash your hands. And he offended them because he didn't keep their traditions. He offended them. I went to a Jewish pizzeria with a friend of mine, his father, he's Jewish, but his dad's really Jewish. There's a crazy place. Jewish pizzeria, right? It's a kind of contrast in ideas, you know. <laughs> Can I have a matzo ball on that on that slice there? How about some gefilte fish with that pizza? Can I get I guess you guys aren't going to anyway. So I go to a Jewish pizzeria. So I'm going to the Jewish pizzeria. We're going to get a pizza. And I go, I'm going to go to the bathroom and wash my hands. He goes, oh, no, first you got to go, you got to go over here. And so I go and stand in line. i got to stand in line. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, an unwritten rule. I don't have any idea what the unwritten rules are here. And so I stand in line, and I walk up to a sink. And everybody, everybody in the place is in this line. And you got to go up to the sink, and you got to go like this. They pour water this way, they pour water this way, and they pour some water, water, water. Got a little yellow vase, and Pouring water over my hands. Okay, I guess I can order my pizza now. You know, unwritten rules, religious context. Nobody understands them. I'll give you another one. I went to because okay, so Judaism and Christianity. So God is a different thing. So anyway, I was invited to a, a, a Jewish uh, uh, festival. I was invited, so I went. Right? I don't know what I'm doing. And you guys can all laugh at me. I have no idea what I'm doing. Everybody there knows what they're doing. They'll walk over. Rabbi goes, whoa, 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 and everybody walks over and grabs a book. Now there were blue books, and there were purple books. I grabbed the purple one, and I went in and sat down. And there were two sets of chairs. There were chairs on this side, and there were chairs on this side. And there was everybody sitting there, but there was one chair that was in the middle. So I know where to sit. So I sat in the chair that was in the middle of the row. And the, the usher comes over and goes, no, no, that's to separate the men from the women. I'm like, oh, sorry. And so he moves me over to the other side. And then the rabbi is doing all these readings. And I'm on. The, I'm trying to find the page. I'm like, what in the world is this guy reading? And the rabbi's son comes over and takes the purple book out of my hand and gives me the blue one. And he says, oh, that's the book, the book for women. <laughs> then there was a dinner following. And I go and sit down at the dinner. Again, unwritten rules. And I'm there. And I'm, with the, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm just waiting. And the guy that brought me, he's like, oh, pastor, try some of this, try some of that. And he starts loading my plate with food. I didn't load my plate with food. He starts loading my plate. The rabbi walks into the room. I'm the only one with the plate on the food. He looks at me and he goes, wait till we begin. So I told the guy that went to me there, I said, if I ever go there like that again, I go, I'm going to load your plate. I'm, I'm totally going to get back on you. This is some unwritten rules. And so this guy's offended because Jesus didn't wash his hands. In the Bible, what God did to his people was he commanded them, Jeremiah in the book of Amos, he commands his people to reform. They're following him in a way that he did not prescribe. And so he calls them to reform, which is to reform what they're doing. And in Amos, he tells them that justice and righteousness is to be their river, that they're a little light that's based upon justice. Justice is the right use of power, using your power correctly. Injustice is when power is abused. That's the definition. So the people that are in power, when they do not use their power correctly, it's called injustice. People that have power, when they use their power correctly, it's called justice. You and I have power. We are to use our power correctly. Then also righteousness. What is right to God? It's what listen to. Use your power rightly. Stop abusing people. Stop taking advantage of people. Stop wounding people. Stop doing all this stuff and saying that you love me. So it wasn't like they were making a mistake. They were living a lifestyle of abuse. They were living a lifestyle of hurting people, living a lifestyle that was doing whatever they want, regardless of what the Lord said. The Lord says, look, cut that crap out if instead. You're saying that you love me, but yet you're doing all this. And then it had the same thing in Jeremiah. We have the prophet standing at the door of the temple, and he's telling the people, don't trust in lying vanities. Because all the people, what they would do is they would show up, and they would worship God on, on Saturday. That was their day. They would worship God on Saturday, and then they would go out for the rest of the week, and they would worship all the gods of the culture, Kamosh, Mark, and Asterisk, and Molech, and Nail. They would worship every god of the culture. Whatever the culture was following, and whatever the culture was doing, that's where they went. And they had a belief system that aligned with the culture, but yet they were 
show up and just in a religious act and stand before the Lord. The Bible tells the Christian that we're in the world, but we're not of it. Now, what that means is, is that we're in a world, but what it's talking about is our attitude and the way that we think is not in line with the culture. We don't think like the culture. We're in the culture, but we don't think. The culture thinks about greed. We think about generosity. The culture thinks about uh, you know, dominating people. We think about serving people and building something. It's just a totally different way of thinking. And that's what God calls his people to. But the religious people were just showing up and thinking everything was cool. We're just going to show up and then we're going to go out and we're going to show up and Jeremiah's like, we got it all wrong. We, as Christians, we're to follow out of, and obey, not out of obligation, but out of identity and love. I follow the Lord because I know who he has made me. When you come to Christ, he gives you something. You get a new life, you get a new identity, you get a new purpose, you get a new destiny. And he calls you son, and he calls you daughter. You become a son of the highest. You didn't put a resume in to get it. As soon as you give your life to Christ, you're now given it, you're branded. I'm a son of the highest. I'm an heir of this world, I'm the one to come. I'm eternally saved, and I'm on my father's business. Now, if I don't act like that, I have a choice. I can either live towards my new identity, or I can continue to think I was who I am. That old man dies. That's what the Bible tells us, that when you come to Christ, your old man dies. I no longer Kevin. Kevin died a long time ago. That guy's dead. Now I can keep walking around and trying to resurrect this zombie and trying to live that life, or I can begin to accept who I am, and I can begin to live towards the identity that Jesus has given me. I don't follow the Lord out of obligation. I follow the Lord out of identity. It's who I am. I'm a son of the highest. I don't do that. I'm a son of the highest. I don't go there. I'm a son of the highest. This is what I do. You know, it's not, it's not the superior thing. It's just an issue of knowing who you are and who he's made you. Come on. Hey, exactly. That's why we do what we do. We don't do you, when you come in, when you come to Christ, you become part of his family. You're not, you're not a spectator. You're not outside. You're inside. You're in Christ. You're branded. You're a daughter of the highest. Princes and princesses of God. I don't look like it. I don't feel like it. All of that is irrelevant. Truth. This is who you are. And you begin to see yourself as heaven sees you. Heaven does not see me in relationship to who I was. Heaven sees me in relationship to who I am. I'm in Christ and my identity is the son of the highest. And I have authority. I have power. I have destiny. I have hope. And all of that stuff becomes my reality when I pursue it. Christians don't see the kingdom in their reality because they do not pursue it. They just kind of stand there. Okay. We accept things. And religious thinking tells you you should just be grateful. Oh, you should be grateful, Christian. You're just a worm. God saved you. You know, you should just spend your life in cowering gratitude. God, that's not what God accepts from you. He doesn't accept this. He's not looking for you when you come to him to spend your life in front of him in cowering gratitude. He wants his sons and daughters on their feet. On your feet. Know who you are. Take your rightful place. You are an heir of royalty in my house. You are lords and ladies in my house. Be who you are. He doesn't restrain you. He's seeking to unleash you. And we all, we got to hug the cross. Oh, it's just all, oh, I just got to come to Jesus. Whoa, oh, just. Oh, brother, I just had a hard week this week. You know, I'm just so grateful to be saved. What? That's religion. Some of you, you grew up with that. So the cross is the entry point. The resurrection, I should say. The cross means nothing without the resurrection. Jesus didn't save you to leave you there. It's not a gospel of salvation. This is really important. And this is hard because you're going to hear it. Like, there's pastors and teachers. This is what they teach. They teach it's a gospel of salvation. It's a gospel of the kingdom. The rule and reign, the dominion of God in every aspect and sphere of life, period. Jesus, not one time in the New Testament is it called the gospel of salvation. Not once. But yet that's what the church espouses. The Bible calls it the gospel of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world and then the end shall come. And well, we got to proclaim the gospel to the end of the world, then Jesus is coming back. I'm like, which kingdom? Which, which gospel? What are we talking about? The gospel of the kingdom. So when I say that, I run the risk of what are you talking about? No, salvation, so imagine this. The kingdom, let's just say, it's a mansion, a palace, a realm, all right? So there's a realm. You're going to go into another world or to another country. And what salvation is, is the bridge into that country. You understand that? Put it as a house. The house is full of crazy stuff. Amazing stuff is in this house. It belongs to you. 
But what if, if I gave you a house, a mansion, and I endowed that house with all kinds of crazy things, I threw you the keys, some people wouldn't even go in the door. Other people would go in the door and they'd just stand in the foyer for the rest of their lives. That's the equivalent. Jesus, you're born again, you have access and entrance into the house. Does this make sense to you? It's not the end game. Salvation is the beginning. Your eternal life begins now. It goes, you're not going to die, Christian. You're going to live forever. Your body's going to die, but your spirit will go on forever. Same with the unbeliever. We just go two different places. <laughs> one goes up, one goes down. If you don't know Christ, you can become a son and daughter. All you got to do is give your life to him. It's a free gift. What does he require? Surrender. That's it. That's it. He doesn't say, go, go do a bunch of works. Go, go off and do the 12 trials of Hercules and then come back and see me and see if I'm approving of it. All he says is, give your life to me. That's it. You give me your life, I'll give you mine. I got news for you. This life's way better than yours. Okay? He's never lost. He's never been defeated. He doesn't have any resources, any needs that haven't been met. It's a totally different world. We follow not out of obligation, but identity. Religion says, do this and you'll be loved. Jesus says, do this because you are loved. God loves those who don't even know him. And Jesus says, come to me because I love you. To the non-believer. To the, to the unbeliever, he says, follow me because I love you. We don't follow him out of obligation. We follow him because he loves us. And he's called us by name. You get the point? Even to be saved and to be born again, why do I give my life to Christ? Because he loves you. What is love? See, love, look, the biblical definition of love, we got to define terms. Our love is feeling, emotion, that's how friendship, that's how we determine love. The Bible that defines love is to seek the highest good. That's the biblical definition of what love is. So when God says, I love you, it means I'm seeking your highest good all the time, every day. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not have everlasting life. God so sought the highest good of mankind that he gave his son to pay the price for us. He couldn't pay, to take a penalty for us that we couldn't pay. Sin. It's that simple. We do it because we're loved. We come to Christ because we love. We follow Christ because we love. I do it because he loves me. He's for me. He's not against me. Next slide. The Bible says he demonstrates his love for us and how we react to sinners Christ and God. Say this with me. He loves me, he loves me. Just, because. just because. He will help me, he will help me. Just, because. just because. There is no reason why he loves you. No reason. He loves you just because he loves you. The Bible says he sets his affections on you. He determines he's chosen to love you. You know what he's chosen to love you? In spite of you. I love you in spite of you. I love you regardless of anything you, you are. I, I, he's chosen to love us. And he's chosen to seek the highest good. Some of you are here, here this morning because people have prayed for you. You don't know Jesus. And God has called you to this place and he's summoned you here to let you know that he loves you and he has more for you than you can possibly imagine. He's calling you forward. He's calling you out of and into. So what's going on. Others, Christians, you come to this place to understand that it's not about religion, it's not about not external works, it's about the, a God who loves you, who is for you, he's forever for you. He's going to help you just because. Yeah, I have family members that have jacked up their lives, okay? Even as pastors, we have crazy people in our families and that do crazy things. And they come to me and they're like, you know, Kevin, you don't understand, you know, this is the place my life's at. And my call to them is always call on the Lord. Just call on them. Like, yeah, you know, I, I, I did this, and I knew better, and I shouldn't have did this, and, I, you know, I, I had this going for me, and I just completely wrecked it, and now I just don't know what to do. And I'm like, follow the Lord. Why? Because he will help you just because. Jesus will help you. He, he, if you give him the opportunity to help you, he's going to help you. And, he, and watch, it's 70 times 7. I watch people go, God helps them, restores them, they blow it up. And they go back to the Lord, God helps them, they blow it up. He, he, he will keep helping you. Why? Because he's good. Because he's kind. You have an infinitely powerful God who chooses mercy over judgment. He'll judge, but he isn't judging now. He'll, he'll do what he has to do, but he doesn't want to do that. You have a God. This is the same God. The Bible says that when he looks, the sun and the stars run from him. That's how powerful he 
as he spins planets on his hand. His creation flees from him. The Bible says his eyes burn like fire. His feet are burnished bronze. He sits on a throne. A sword comes forth from his mouth. His voice is like thunders, like water. Is incredibly powerful, incredibly dominant in any in every way. Yet he chooses to show himself to us as love and mercy if we're willing to accept it. Well, if God loves me, well, why don't I see it? Because you're not willing to accept it. Because you're not willing to receive it. You're not willing to align it. God isn't just going to just, you know, you have to ask him. You have to call on him. Just rain on the just and rain on the unjust. He'll give you basic provision. But if you want anything more than that, you're going to have to call on him. A lot of you, God's been at you. You know God's been calling at you. He's been getting you to call on him. He's been putting you in, you've been finding yourself in these situations, and you don't know where to turn. Turn to Jesus. You don't believe Jesus is who he says he is? I dare you. A double dog there. This is how you know Jesus is who he says he is. You ask him, right? You can do it in your closet, you can do it in the car, you can do it defiantly, but you go, Jesus, if you really say you are, show yourself to me and leave it alone. Go your way. It's not going to divinely come through the wall. So of course this is who I am. But he's going to show you who he is. Okay? I grew up with a lot of issues of faith, right? My family, you know, stuff. I grew up with certain, certain knowledges of, of things. But I, I was at a point in my life when I was young, I was in my probably 19 years old, I was at this crossroads. Is this stuff real? Is this stuff actually true? Right? And I said, Jesus, if you're who you are, who you say, or show yourself to me. And God began to speak to me in a way that only I can understand. He began to do things in my life that meant nothing to anybody else, but meant everything to me. And I knew it was only the Lord who did that. Nobody else could do it. Oh, that's natural. But to, to, to you, to see that happen in my life, you would say, that's just a natural occurrence. But to me, I knew it was the Lord because he was speaking my language. Jesus will speak to you interpersonally. He will speak to you in a way that only you will understand. And it will mean nothing to anybody else because he's that personal. He speaks personally to you. Lupe was just leaving here. And, uh, uh, when she was leaving, they had the little kids come around. They're, they were like, Pastor, we got a word for you. We got a word for you. I'm like, hit me. Come on. Let me have it. Come on. Give you a word, I said, give Lupe a word. They don't know Lupe at all. And the little boy, Jeremiah, looks at her and goes, uh, I see a person who's struggling to walk. He can't walk. This boy's like nine years old. He said, goes, I see a person who's struggling to walk, and she can't walk, and she's on a walker. Or she didn't say walker. He says, she's struggling to walk, and you keep trying to help her. You keep trying to help her. And he says, and I feel like the Lord says, in two days, everything's going to be okay. She starts crying. Well, then the little girl, I said, I, I know the story. Then the little girl, I gave her a girl a little search. She talked to herself. I couldn't get Gabriella. I couldn't get her to even hear what she was saying. But I heard what Nehemiah said. And Lube, his mother, is in a walker. And she's struggling right now because she has to come to a decision to put her in a nursing home. And Lube's been caring for her. So here you see, he doesn't know this girl. He's seeing this girl. He's seeing this woman who has a mother who can't walk. And he sees a woman who can't walk. And he sees her trying to help the person walk, and he sees that she's really upset, and that she needs an answer, and he tells her, I think two days you're going to have an answer, or something's going to work out. How does he know that? Nine years old. Because the Lord is forever speaking. And do you know where he speaks to? Right to the heart. Right to the heart. How does he know? Jesus speaks interpersonally to the heart. The issue isn't whether or not Jesus will speak. The issue is whether or not you're willing to hear. It's not an issue of God's voice. It's an issue of your willingness to hear. It's true. Many people think Solomon asked for wisdom. He didn't ask for wisdom. He asked for a hearing ear. Lord, give me wisdom that I may hear your people. That's not the, that's not the language. That's, that's the translation. The language says, give me a hearing ear. Give me the ability to hear you in order that I may hear your people. Let me know what you're saying. Religion says there's good people and there's bad people. Jesus says there's born-again people and there's people who are not born-again. We like to put a generic word in the church called saved. I prefer born again. You know why? Because born again is an experience. When you're born again, you know it. When Christ comes in you and you're born again, you're like, whoa, something happened. It can be dramatic, but some, it might be subtle, but you, something's changed. That's the difference between being born again. I have people come to me and they go, I prayed, Pastor. I, gave that, I did that thing that you said, the prayer and everything I did. And I'm like, and they're like, but I'm not sure that it's real. And I ask them real quick, I go, what's different? Tell me what's different. I don't want to tell you two stories. One girl, one woman looks at me, well, that's easy. I can forgive. I said, you couldn't forgive before? She's like, no. Me? No, mine was profanity. That was mine. I spoke two languages. I spoke English and profanity. It's true. You're like, you're just a civilized. You're undignified. I don't know. You know, pastor, you're 
it's not dignified. I'm just telling you what I was. When I came to Christ, I couldn't, I, profanity wasn't, I mean, I used to cuss. I could cuss like a sailor. I could cuss artistically. I could say swear words in the, in like, like it sound, would sound like art coming out of my mouth. Like, wow, I've never heard that word used like that. That's pretty crazy. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's where I was. In my reality of being born again as opposed to being saved, born again brought a transformation to me that I couldn't experience any other way. Things were different. There was another guy that was here, big dude, crazy dude. He's super mellow. If you talk to him, he'd be like this really mellow, kind of kind guy and everything. But he used to be like really the gangs, all kinds of crazy stuff. And he said, Man, before I came to Jesus, my world was concrete and heat. He said, That's all I saw concrete and heat. I said, It was born again. I said, What's different? It's like I see trees, I hear flowers, and the world is alive. Born again. There's two types of people. There are people who are born again, and there are those who are not. It's not those who go to church and those who don't. It's those who are born again and those who are not. Jesus said, you must be born again. You go, how do I be born again? I'm born physically. You're born physically, but you're dead spiritually. Well, I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. You haven't seen nothing to you have the Holy Spirit. You're spiritual all day long. You might have a tuning. You might be able to pick up, you're like a radio, you pick up frequencies. You're not born again. You're not born in the spirit. We're born into sin. We must be born into righteousness. Our, our righteousness is not from ourselves. We get born again by giving our life to Christ. He imparts his spirit to you. How do you know? He just does it. This is the answer. How do you know Jesus is real? Because he lives in me. He lives in me. That is an undeniable fact. He's in me. It's true. That's what it means to be saved. Christ comes into you. Everything's different. Behold, all things pass away. Behold, all things are new. The old is gone, the new is coming. You're translated out of darkness and into light. It's a complete, total, universal change within, within you from the inside out. It doesn't come from the outside in, it comes from the inside out. When you come to Christ, you get a new beginning, a new future, a new hope, a new identity, a new purpose, and a new destiny. That's a pretty good deal. So it sounds like a blessing club. It is. And I'm the president of the local chapter. Jesus is a blessing God. Do you know why man was created? Man was created on the sixth day when the work was done. I don't know if you know that. Man and woman were not created on the first day. So the God says, hey, I need some work done here. Get this done. Man was created to inherit the blessing. Man was created to be the object of affection and the object of love. And within the creation, they were to partner with him to receive the fruit from the creation. But they were not partnering to build the creation itself. They were partnering with the Lord to receive the fruit, but they were not building the creation. Man was created as God's muse. Man was created as the object of God's affection and love. But, how many knows you can only love somebody to the degree that they're willing to let you love them? You can love people all you want, but if that person doesn't receive your love, it means nothing. It's like painting off a wall. Right? God has all kinds of love for you. He's got all kinds of grace. He's got all kinds of goodness. He's got all kinds of wonderful things that he wants to give you, but he can't do it for you unless you let him. And this works even not just with non-Christians, but even with Christians. We don't give ourselves permission to receive the things God has for us. We have a hard time receiving the things that God has for us. We will be born again. We have a hard time moving into the greater things that God actually has for us. That's a whole other story. You get access to his kingdom, the mind of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. What a deal. Say this. If Jesus is better in the way that I think, Lord, change the way that I think. Lord, if you are more good, more kind, more gracious, more generous than the way that I think, and change the way. Next slide. He is greater than you think. He is. And if all of that is true, then we have to think differently. If all of this is true, then we have to see differently. Next slide. That's Religion says outwardly pure. Jesus said inwardly pure by the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes to sinners and the religiously correct. That's crazy. Religion cannot save you. Here's the deal. This is Paul. There's a guy in the Bible. His name's Paul. Paul's the most religious guy you ever saw. He's a Pharisee. He was a rule keeper. Rule keeper extraordinary. He was in the top 1%. He was varsity. You know what I'm saying? He was on the varsity team of the rule keepers. And Paul comes to Jesus, and he realizes all of his religion was meaningless. He comes and encounters Christ, and he realizes that all of that meant nothing. And what does he say? He said, I've lost everything because I came to Christ. 
I spent my whole life building something only to realize that it was worthless. He uses the word dumb. What's dumb mean? Dumb. It means that nice little pile that the dog leaves on your yard in front of me in the morning. So when you see the dumb on the ground, you should go, there's religion. There's, there's human works. There's religion. What we do with our culture is we celebrate religion. Well, my pile's bigger than yours, Pastor. Okay, well, I don't know if that's good. You know what I mean? My pile's, my pile's more organized. My pile has glitter and sprinklers and it's on Instagram. That's like how we express it. It's dumb. Human works are dumb. Right? Anything I do outside of partnership with Christ is meaningless. We're to partner with him, but not do anything to impress him. I'm not trying to impress Jesus. I'm trying to follow him. He's not impressed with me. What, he's, what Jesus is impressed with is faith. You want to impress Jesus? Believe him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus, faith is the currency of heaven. Faith is the currency of the spirit. Human need does not move the kingdom. God, why doesn't God do something about those people? He did. He's got a body of people. He's got a body of Christ. And he's commanded to go. Jesus has already done everything he can. He will do about human need. Human need doesn't move him. Lord, don't you see my need? Lord, don't you see my need? Lord, don't you see my need? Yeah, he sees it. The need doesn't move him. God is not need-driven. He's faith-driven. Lord, I see the need, but I believe you are more powerful than that need. I believe in the promise that you have put on me that I'm blessed and in season and out, that I'm blessed in my coming in and blessed in my going out. I believe, Lord. Don't you see my situation, Jesus? Don't you see I'm going under? Don't you see I'm dying? Don't you see all these things are happening to me? And don't let no rather than, Lord, I believe that you work all things out to the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. No matter what the circumstances is, it's going to be for my benefit, it's going to be for my good. Heaven moves. Heaven does not move off of human need. It moves off of faith. Jesus lived the life you never lived, to die a death you should die, to, be, to take a judgment that you were entitled to. Here's the deal. This is, again, this is probably for Christians, but it's also for the unbeliever. There's two types of sin in the Bible. You hear me talk about it all the time. I'm going to go a little more in depth into it today. So there's a sin that leads to death. The death of what we're talking about is eternal damnation. There is a hell. Hell is hot, and hell is not the place you want to go. Was hell real? Hell, yeah. Hell's real. Okay? I don't believe in hell. Okay? You don't believe in gravity. Get up on the building and jump. And you're coming down. And you can go, I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity. It's flat. Gravity exists whether you believe in it or not. Hell is a reality whether you believe it or not. And all those born of woman are condemned to hell because of our ancestor Adam. And all those born of Christ are heirs to the kingdom of God eternally. Life it's a difference. That's why Jesus came, was to vacate us from a destiny that we couldn't, we couldn't change. Amen. He came to, to take you from it. And the choice is no longer his, it's yours. Why would God send people to hell? He's not sending anybody to hell. He's throwing them there. Because they rejected him. He puts an offer out here and says, Come to me, I will forgive you, and I will take the judgment off of your life. Your guilt and shame, I will reposition you. I will give you a new birth, and I will give you an eternal destiny. And you go... Well, I don't know. The Bible says you treat the blood of the cross as a common thing. Trample the Son of God underfoot. There is no longer any penalty, any payment for sin. There's nothing else. If you reject Christ, you are hopelessly and helplessly lost. And you treat it as a common thing. Then he says, how shall we neglect so great a salvation? That's why when the sinner comes before God, having known the gospel and having rejected it, they're thrown. They're not ushered to the door. They're thrown. As we rebels and outcasts and rejectors of an offer that a king has made to you. You have insulted him by rejecting his offer. Make no mistake. Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is gracious and he is merciful right now. So you better take advantage of his grace and mercy. Because when you pass from this world to the next, if you have not given your life and you are not born again, you are damned eternally. The Bible uses the very clear language of hell. It's called Gehenna. It says a place of burning. It's a very specific word, Gehenna. And Jesus said it's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, I'm going to go party in hell with my friends. No, you're not. You're going to be tormented day and night, endlessly. A place of darkness and utter despair, and there will be no relief. There's no party in hell. And the devil isn't ruling it. The devil's bound in chains eternally. 
He will not do anything. It's torment. Because you've rejected Christ, the judgment of sin is now on you. You can either let Jesus be the, be the one who judged sin, or you can go, I rejected Christ. Okay, well, the judgment's on you now. You pay for it. Good luck. The Bible says Jesus descended into the heart of the earth. He went, he went there. But how could him hold it? It wasn't tormented. He wasn't beaten in hell. He went there and exercised authority. Took back the keys to hell and the grave, put his head on the foot of the devil, and kicked off. That's what he did. The Bible says he crushed the devil's head. The devil had to strip himself of his armor, everything the devil had stolen, because God gave it to Adam. Adam gave it to the devil. Jesus came and said, It's mine. I want it back. I'm the last Adam. I've come in the form of Adam. That's right. The devil had to do it. He kneeled on the ground, Jesus put his head on his foot, put his head on his head, and he didn't kick off, crushed him. Oh. And rose. That's right. No timid God here. No powerless God here. No weak an inferior God here. He offers you something that you cannot despise. He offers you something you cannot reject. He offers you salvation. When it's offered to you, if a king, you ever you realize how a royalty looks like? If a king offers you something and you don't take it, do you know that you insult the king publicly? Try that out. We don't have kings in our culture, so we don't really understand that ethos. But if you insult the king, when you go to see him, we make our closest relation with the Queen of England. And they, you've got to go to the Queen of England, you'll probably spend two days going through a protocol class. They're going to teach you. When you come before her, you do this. You say this. If she offers you this, do not reject it. If she does this, don't do this. They teach you what to say when you go in there. Do not insult her. That's the idea. Know the protocol. And so if you insult the king in the ancient times, they take your head off. It's true. You don't insult the one who's, who's offering you something. He's offering you something. Something you can't gain any other way. He's giving it to you as a gift. You slap it from his hand. Clear picture. Clear picture. We don't preach this in the church anymore. We want it all nice and clear. Fairy Jesus with cotton candy and pinwheels. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit bears witness to sin, righteousness, and so if we do not preach or make a part of our message from time to time, a message about sin, a message about righteousness, what is right to God, and a message about eternal damnation that is, that is going to happen for those who reject Christ, we are not giving the Holy Spirit any room to work, because that's what he ministers off of. We have churches that don't even use the word hell. They won't even use, they won't even use the word sin. Well, champions for Jesus. Well, not if you don't know Christ. Not if you're not born again. You're not a champion for anybody. You're lost. Harmatano is a verb. So, you, so let's separate this. This is important. This is where I wanted to go. You have a verb. You have the things that you do. We're sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm born again, but I still sin. I don't get it right. I say the wrong things. I sometimes make a bad decision. You know, I don't do every single thing the Lord asks me. The Lord will tell me something. I'll be like, ah, you know. I don't do everything He tells me. I try. But I miss it, okay? I still sin, right? Even though I'm born again. My actions do not condemn me. My actions keep me from the purposes God has for me. So if I will obey the purposes of God, then if I will obey what the Lord says, then I will move into the purposes of God. But those actions do not condemn me. What condemns me is harmatia. Harmatia is a noun. It means state of being. We're born a sinner. You're born in a state of being that you cannot change. You didn't, it wasn't that you broke the commandment. That's why you, you're condemned to hell. You're condemned to hell because you were born. All born of Adam were lost. And we must be born again. You understand the concept here? And we get it also simple. Well, Pastor, what about people around the world who have never heard about Jesus? You ever heard that one? What about those people? Well, Roman, the Bible answers everything. The Bible says to those who don't know the Christ, who don't know the Lord, who have never heard of the Lord, yet obey their conscience. Because it's the conscience, the conscience of the spirit. If the conscience is impressed, the spirit is pressing, they will obey the law of their conscience, they become a law unto themselves. In other words, God will judge them according to the obedience of the conscience. But you and I have heard the gospel, so we're not under that category. Western civilization has heard the gospel. I dare say 80-90% of the human race has heard the gospel. So you don't get that excuse. We ours is confronted with us in a clear, very present, present reality. And if you're a Christian, you need to know that your actions are not what condemn you. 
Your actions are what keep you from God's destiny. The state of being, okay? 55 times that's the word that's used in the scripture. State of being. You're sinful. You're in a state of being that you can't change. But the good news is Jesus can change it. Next slide. The Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of moral corruption. There's nothing you can do externally that's going to change anything. I'm going to try more. I'm going to go work with orphans. <laughs> I'm going to go give a dollar to that homeless guy in the corner. That's what I'm going to do. It's not going to do anything. That external, that's great. He's happy. Whatever, but you know, that's not going to, that isn't what saves you. Some need to repent of sin, some need to repent of religion. If you're born again, nothing can take away your birthright. If you're born again, there's not a sin that you commit, and we're going to get into a theological argument, which I've already happened with myself, which I'm not going to get into with myself, arguing with myself. When you're born again, when you're born again, I reserve the right to disagree with us. So when you're born again, nothing can take away your birthright. You belong to him. You're a son and daughter. People like, if you have a hard time with this in the church, religion wants to tell you, you can lose your salvation. And we want to constantly keep the people under pressure and constantly keep the people under fear. If you have a child and that child was born, do they ever not, are they ever not born? At any point, does that child ever not become your child? Come on, help me out, ladies. If you're born, you have a child, you have a baby. At any point, okay, if that baby poops in his diaper, is that baby no longer your child? No. If that baby drools all over itself, is that baby no longer your child? If that baby projectile vomits on you, right? You just feed him, spend two hours feeding him, getting him to eat, and all of a sudden he looks at you and goes, hi, mommy, blah, all over you. Is that child at any point no longer your child? When the child is born, the child is yours. It doesn't mean that the child becomes everything you want them to. It doesn't mean that the child does everything you want them to, but the child is still your child. Not every person is God's child. They're not. Every person is God's creation. But those that receive the spirit, the Bible says you get the power to be the child of God. You're born again. Nothing's going to take that from you. You can poop, your, poop yourself. That's really what Christians do. We make a poopy diapers because we're immature. Babies poop in their diapers because they have no control of themselves in that area. Christians sin because they have no control. Either they're willful or they are undeveloped or they're ignorant. But none of the ignorance, the willfulness, or the lack of development disqualifies them from their position as a child. This has got to be understood. And then there are, there are religious people who would just practically jump out of their chairs the fact that I just said that. Because what they want to do is they don't want... See, for me, I'm born again. I can't screw this up if I try. Nothing is going to disqualify me. There's therefore now, right now, no condemnation. Not now, nor ever will there be to those who are in Christ Jesus. I cannot be condemned. I'm already, I'm already free. That doesn't mean I made my destiny. So here I am, I'm born again, and the Lord goes, here's your destiny, Kevin. I want you to partner with me, and I want you to run for it. And then I make all these stupid choices, and it keeps me from my destiny. That still doesn't mean I'm not his son. Do you understand that? This has got to be understood, because what happens is we put pressure on the Christian with guilt and shame. And we, we think that by externally controlling them, we can get the people to live righteous lives. Well, you shouldn't do that. You're going to lose your salvation. You shouldn't, do, you, know, you shouldn't do that because it grieves the heart of your father. You shouldn't do that because it grieves the Holy Spirit. If you need to be motivated by externals, you need to grow up. No amount of external can make you the person you don't want to be. If you don't want to be that person, well, I need accountability. I just need to put accountability. Put, you can put accountability around your life 24-7. You can put people over you that just look at you and just examine you and pressure you all day, but if you don't want to be that person, no amount of accountability will make you the person you don't want to be. I, I follow the Lord because he loves me. I follow the Lord because I think he's got a better plan than me. I follow the Lord because he's a little smarter than me, and I know he's got purposes for me. I know the Lord is not trying to diminish me. The Lord is trying to elevate me. He's trying to lift you up. That's right. God is not intimidated by your power, your strength, or your ability. He gave it to you. You may be using it in the wrong way, and so he's trying to get you to use it in the right way. You may be using it for yourself or by yourself. He's trying to get you to use it with him and with his spirit. God has no plan. He wants giant killers. God's not looking for a bunch of mice running around. Oh, so, you know. And we create that atmosphere in the church where there's a diminishment over the people. And we invoke a fear over them that there's, there's no love and fear. Or there's no fear and love. That's what the Bible says. Why am I had that right? It's close. 
The Bible says there is no fear in love. And so if we're putting fear on the people, trying to talk about your salvation, everybody's afraid. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh, I went to the nightclub four hours. I don't know if I lost my salvation. I better run to the altar. This is how we live. This is how we live. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. What do you do with that verse? You're free. You can do it. It ain't going to profit you. It's not going to lead you where God intends you. But it's lawful. It's not against you. It's not against you kind of condemning If you're not born again, you're separated. You're fallen. You must be born again. How do we do it? This is the question. So I said all that to bring you here. The believer needs to be edified. And the non-believer needs to have an opportunity to come to Christ and be forgiven. So says something. So we've got to take the religion off of the Christian. We have to put the power back in their lives. We have to put the call back on the lives. We have to put the identity back on their lives. It's like you think about it even in the context of parents. Is there any parent that puts it in the go? I want you to be diminished. I want you to be a do-nothing. I want you to just, I, I mean, every time you see me, I want your eyes down. I want you to shake every time I come in the room. I mean, is there a father in the room that would want that? Is there a mother in the room? What, we want? what do we want for our kids? We want them to go far. Go beyond my life. Go to this crazy place. Become something. Impact the world. Do something. Be happy, be joyful, do, do something meaningful. That's what we want. Why would we see God as anything different than that? Because he's not. And I'm not making it up. There's, this is true. He supports it with his word and with his nature. If you don't know Christ, here's what you need to understand. Everybody's sin. We are all in the state of sin apart from Christ. We can't change ourselves. That's the point. Sin brings eternal judgment. No getting around it. Well, when I go before Jesus, I'm just going to talk to him. He's going to understand. You know what's going to happen? I'll tell you the Bible very clear. When you come before the Lord, you'll be silent. You will not even be able to speak. You can't speak. You ever go to court? You might go to court. You don't just say whatever you want to judge. You have to have permission to speak. If the judge doesn't give you permission to speak, you're not speaking. The Bible says when we stand before Jesus, who is the judge, he's going to judge the believer for reward, but he judges the unrighteous in a totally different way. He's judging them in a sense of that you rejected me, penalties on you, and that's the way it is. You're not going to say a word. You're not going to reason with him. There's no reasoning. The penalty of sin is eternal damnation, but the gift of God is eternal life. So here we have a choice. Same choice. This choice is all through the Bible. Life, death, blessing, cursing. Choose what you will serve. And the Lord says, I choose. I would that you would choose life and live. That's what he says. But he says the choice is yours. I'm giving you life or death. Choose which one you want. I want you to pick this one, but I can't control you. I can't make you. I can't force you. You have to do it willingly. I'm not even obligating you to do it. I'm simply offering it to you. Which one do you want? Well, it says choose life and you may live. Romans says, God, Jesus tried to take away the eternal possession. How do you do it? You know how easy it is to get, to get born again? Anybody know what a marriage is? All the girls should know. Okay. I was telling, I was with my American people, the guy's like, I'm like, how long have you been planning this wedding? And the guy look at me and go, like, oh, two weeks. Yeah. I look at her and go, how long have you been planning this wedding? And she's like, my whole life. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Women understand the concept of, of, of covenant and marriage a lot quicker than men do. They understand what it means to bond. They understand what it means to be loyal in that sense. When you, come, when you get married, I stand up here and marry people, right, or wherever we are, and really what we're doing, we're doing, we're doing like two things, right? We're, we're sitting here, and they're saying something, she's saying something, and I say something, and then they give each other something, and then we sign something, and they're married. You're like, that's it? Yeah, but it's very powerful. Marriage ultimately is a spiritual bond, but that's for another day. When you come to Christ, you're giving yourself to him. That's why the Bible says with your word and with your heart. It's the same thing that happens when a woman and a man get married. He uses his words, but he plays and he says, I love you. I love you. I love you with my mind, girl. I love you. I love you so deep you're in my mind all the time. She doesn't think you're in your mind. Where, where, do, they, where do you want them to love you from? Ah, I know I get a response out that one. From the heart. The Bible says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Just give your heart to him. Believe that this is true. Don't believe in your mind. You're not going to understand salvation. Salvation cannot be understood with the mind because it's spiritual. It makes no sense. Human rationality cannot discern and understand spiritual things, but somehow your spirit can understand spiritual things. 
Somehow there's some part of us that can understand, well, wow, that's true. Your mind goes, that's not possible. That can't happen. That can't happen. Your mind is not going to understand. You have to choose to believe in something you cannot understand. It makes no sense. The Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. The Greek is the intellectual mind. We get a lot of our culture and our society from the Greeks. The university, the, the whole system that we operate from, comes from a Greek way of thinking. Hellenistic, which is, you know, we think intellectually. Scientifically, that's how we think. Right? The ancients, or the Middle Eastern people, think more spiritually. But we, our culture, comes, he says to the gospel, so when I give this to you, the intellectual says, that's stupid. The spiritual, it's a stumbling block, which to the intellectual seems foolish because it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's not supposed to reason with your rational mind. The gospel is never supposed to appease your intellect. Ever. God doesn't even reason with you. The Bible says that the human mind is at war with God. The carnal mind is the enemy of God. Your mind, the way you think, it, I do not think like you, my ways are above your ways, that whole deal, God says that. You have to believe in your heart and confess in your mouth. You call them, you say, so here's what we're going to do, we're going to pray. Right? I'm going to praise the group. Right? We're not going to fight for it. We're not going to do that. We're going to let you lay and sit wherever you are, but you're going to pray. You know, open your mouth. You've never given your life to Jesus. Today's your day. Today's your day. And we're all going to pray together. We're all going to bow our heads. We're all going to close our eyes. And for those who are believers, we're going to pray with you. This is a family thing. We're inviting you to come and be a part of the family. The Lord is inviting you to become a part of the family. And today it is. You say, well, who do you care? You know what I'm saying? He's so hung up on what we think other people think. But what do you think Jesus thinks? He says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, you have will deny me before the Father. Try that out. So confess me openly, I confess you openly. Deny me openly, and you have will deny me. Ouch. Gives you an opportunity right here, right now. The Bible says today is the day, not next week, not next Tuesday, not a year, not when I think about it, not when I'm ready, right now. Right now. So we're going to pray. I'm going to lead the prayer. All you got to do, open your heart. You don't even have to understand. You just got to go for it. Just take the red pill, you know. Let's pray. Say, dear Jesus, I believe you are the Savior. And I need a Savior. I may not, come on, we can do better than that. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you, Jesus. Say, that's it? No, that's the start of it. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. So we're going to dismiss.